Uh, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Habakkuk, in the Old Testament, near the end. This was, I think, this past week's uh, reading in the Old Testament from the Daily Bible Reading, which we're following along through on Sundays, trying to take a passage that you would have read, um, or one you might read in the future, and um, and kind of looking at it together, hopefully to help fuel your Bible study and to um, help uh, strengthen your devotional time as we spend this year, a little over a year, reading through God's Word together. Um, this is, I think, the third time that I've um, shared from Habakkuk, so I'm sorry if you hear some of the same things, but this book is so um, amazing to me in how absolutely relatable it is. Some books, especially in the Old Testament, are hard to relate to at times, but when I read Habakkuk, I, I see myself right away in it um, in every page. There's only three chapters, so it's a lot shorter than some of other Old Testament books, um, but it deals with something that we all struggle with, um, humans in general and Christians, God's people especially. And so the title today, the main question today that I'm asking is, where's God in all this? That could be asked in any time, in any situation. You might have asked that question. You might be asking that question right now. You might have asked that question before. You might ask that question in any sort of different scenario, and it can mean a few different things and mean personal things to each and every one of us. But if we're honest, I'm sure we can say, I'm sure we would say that we have all asked this question where is God in all this? That is the main question that Habakkuk asks in this book. Where's God in all this? We don't know too much about Habakkuk. We do know a couple of things from the first few verses of this book. If you look, the first verse says, this is the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. So we know that Habakkuk is a prophet. And an Old Testament prophet of the Lord was someone who God had especially picked to share his word with. Through some other dating clues, um, we are pretty sure that Habakkuk was alive during the time of Jeremiah. So he would have also been alive during the time of Ezekiel and um, even a contemporary of Daniel. So if you know the big thing that happened in Israel around the time when all of those guys were kicking was the destruction of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, and the exile into Babylon. So a few, well, last year we spent some time through Daniel, and Daniel was taking place while the Israelites were taken to Babylon, and Habakkuk was alive in the time right before the final destruction of the kingdom of Judah. And prophets back then had specific jobs, and their specific job, if you read through Jeremiah or Ezekiel or even Isaiah, is to let the people know that things are bad because of sin and that there is a need for the people of God, his nation to turn back to him. And so if you read through Habakkuk, you get this sense of impending doom. 
And just look at the first few things that Habakkuk says. So this is his burden. This is the issue that's on his heart that he sees surrounding him in the nation of Judah and or the kingdom of Judah and the nation of Israel. And he is, is distraught with what he sees. First thing he says is, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear. I don't know the time exactly that passes through this book. We don't really know. Um, so I don't know exactly how long Habakkuk's been crying, but you get the idea that he has been crying out to God for help for a while. And he is, he feels like God's not listening. How long shall I cry out and you will not hear, even cry out to you violence and you will not say. So he's not just crying out for help, but he's crying out for specific help that there is violence being done that God can only step in and save and God's not stepping in and saving. It doesn't appear that God is listening or that God is interested in the people of Judah. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? Everywhere Habakkuk looks in his culture, sin runs rampant. For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. The issue of sin that is permeating this nation is so severe that even the government is corrupt local government, all the way up to the king. There was only a few good kings in Judah, kings who the Lord would say were his servants, and mostly they were pretty terrible. Mostly they were only concerned with themselves and with political power and not honoring God. And Habakkuk sees that even the government is so corrupt that there's no justice. There's no just laws. There's no way to get justice for anyone. And then he says this for the wicked surround the righteous. This is kind of the heart of his burden. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Habakkuk as a prophet of God would have known that not everybody who's an Israelite loved the Lord. I mean, it's pretty obvious from what he sees. But he does know that within the nation of Israel, within the kingdom of Judah, there are Israelites who love the Lord and who want to do right. There are righteous people. And the burden that Habakkuk sees is as he looks at his nation, he looks and he sees that the righteous people of God, God's servants, are surrounded by wicked, the wicked. That if you are unrighteous, you gain you're on top, you win. And if you're righteous, you lose, you're crushed, you're silenced. So Habakkuk is on his knees, I assume, crying out to the Lord, asking for salvation for the people of God within his own nation because he can't understand why God isn't listening or God isn't involved or God doesn't seem to care. There's two questions that Habakkuk asks in this book. And that's the first one. And I summed that one up with where God, where are you and all this? Aren't you supposed to be taking care of us? Aren't you supposed to be saving us? If the righteous are righteous, don't you care? So what's also amazing about this book and, and why I think it's so wonderful and I can't 
help but talk about it whenever it comes up is the fact that God answers. Now, throughout the Bible, God answers lots of questions. Not all questions, but he answers lots of questions. But if you read through the Psalms or, or you read through the Old Testament and the New Testament and you hear these are heroes of the faith, right? Sometimes they ask questions and God's silent. And those, that's kind of a stark thing when you read that, right? <laughs> I mean, we read a lot that God answers. But then those times when God is silent, it grabs you because you think, wait, God, don't you care? But what's amazing about Habakkuk is, is he's crying out and God answers. And so there's two questions and there's two answers given. And we want to look at those and I want to take a couple of things away and then show you how we have chapter three, because this book probably could have just been chapters one and two. And if that was it, man, this book would be really bad. <laughs> but there's a chapter three, which we're going to see is just, is God's grace and mercy. So Habakkuk cries out, God, where are you in all of this? Everything is terrible. If you love God in the nation of Judah, you are, um, you are a social pariah. And so God says, Look, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your day, which you would not believe, though it were told you. So now, if you are Habakkuk and you are crying out to God and God answers you and he starts out with that, I think I'd have to be pretty excited. Like, this sounds really good. God's about to say something. He's about to lay down some truth. He's about to come in here and fix all these issues. And, uh, and this is going to be amazing. God's finally heard. Look and be astounded. You know what would utterly astound Habakkuk? Is if the evil king was taken off the throne and a king, a godly king was put on. Or all of the government that was corrupt was changed into a righteous government. Or everybody that had gained in unrighteousness was put in their place and vengeance was brought and justice was brought and the righteous were upheld. That would utterly astound Habakkuk in his day because that's not what was happening. And it didn't happen. It didn't happen like that. That would utterly astound him. And God's saying, I'm going to tell you something so unbelievable that after I tell you, you're not going to believe me. Like that's how... Um, great this news is going to be. That's how awesome this news is going to be. And I don't mean awesome like, oh, that's awesome. I mean like the real meaning for awesome. Then he says this, here's the plan. I'm going to tell you my plan, Habakkuk. Here's how I'm going to deal with the evil in Judah. And here's how I'm going to get justice for the righteous. I am raising up the Chaldeans a bitter and hasty nation. That's the Babylonians. I'm raising up the Babylonians, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. I'm raising up this group of people, the Babylonians that are going to come and they're going to take everything. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Basically they're their own gods. They don't believe or care anything about me. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than even the wolves. They have greater technology than just about everybody else. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They flies the eagle that hastens to eat. They are a locust, a swarm of locusts that come and devour and destroy. They all come for violence. God's telling them, here's exactly what the Babylonians are like. They all come for violence 
Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold for they heap up earth and mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. He's describing Babylon and the Babylonian emperor or king. And he's taught, he's basically saying, here's how I'm going to deal with Judah. I'm bringing an enemy, even worse than the Assyrians who have been plaguing you for years to come and wipe you out. When I ask God, where is God in all this? I'm kind of hoping for some hope, (laughs) not my utter destruction. But that's what God's saying here. That's why it's so utterly astounding and amazing and unbelievable to Habakkuk because it's not anything that Habakkuk was expecting. God, where are you in all this? The righteous are being crushed. Aren't you good? Don't you care? Won't you save us? Habakkuk, yes, I'm working. And here's what I'm doing to punish the evil and the injustice. I'm bringing worse evil and worse uh, and brutal, violent empire to come and to mete out justice in Judah. So this is, again, I love this book because it's so relatable because here's the next natural question, which makes sense. This is what I would ask. Uh, Habakkuk asks in verse 12, wait a second. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously? This is, this is 13. So in 12, he, he, he reminds God of something about God. He says, he says, God, are you not from everlasting? Oh Lord, you've appointed them for judgment. That's the Babylonians. You've appointed them to be the judgment for us. Oh rock, you have marked them for correction. Wait, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. So basically he's saying, God, you're good. You're holy. You're sovereign. I know this. How can you use evil to fix evil? And he doesn't just say evil. He says someone who's more evil than even Judah. Like he, he says, you are of pure eyes and to behold evil. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? God, I just wanted to know where you were in all this. And I wanted some hope and some help. And now you're telling me that your plan is to bring somebody who's worse than the people around me to come and destroy us. He can't believe, I mean, God was right. He's utterly astounded and he can't believe that a good God would work this way. Do you ever feel like when you ask or you cry out to the Lord, you don't get that hope you were looking for and maybe you don't get anything or you don't seem to hear anything. You don't find any hope, but things just keep getting worse. Habakkuk can't wrap his mind around how God could use evil for a good purpose. Habakkuk can't wrap his mind around. There's a contradiction he sees here. And basically he's kind of draws this conclusion that, wait a minute, if this is true, which you're God and I know you're going to accomplish what you're going to accomplish. If it's true, then evil seems to win. It's just going to get worse. So how Can that be helpful? (laughs) What am I supposed to do with that? 
I wonder if Habakkuk questioned whether or not he should have even asked it in the first place. Once he learned God's plan, maybe he didn't want to know it anymore because it doesn't seem hopeful. It seems hopeless. So he says this in verse two at the be, or, uh, sorry, chapter two at the beginning. He says, after he says that last question, he asks that last question, God, how can you do this? How can you work this way? It doesn't make sense. He says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me. And this is interesting. And what I will answer when I'm corrected. Throughout this book, Habakkuk, while he is in a just a completely vulnerable state, just at the end of his rope, there's something he always goes back to. He always operates under the assumption that God is good and God is in control. That's a lesson right there in and of itself for us. That wasn't going to be the main thrust of today's, but that's a lesson for us to take away is that even in the midst of this, even in the midst of God saying, revealing the plan and Habakkuk just being like, I don't understand this at all. How can this be? He says, I will wait on the Lord. I'm going to set myself here. I'm going to wait to hear what he has to say. And when I'm corrected, when God fixes my problem, that disconnect I have between this plan and God's work and God's goodness, when he fixes that for me, then I'm going to answer, uh, then I'm going to answer him. That's a good lesson for us that even when things don't seem to be jiving together, even when it seems like God's plan is out of whack or wrong, maybe sometimes maybe we think that or not going the way it should, we need to operate under the assumption that God knows something we don't. And we need to have the humility to acknowledge that. But that's not the lesson today. So just that was a freebie. That was an extra to take home with you. So he waits for an answer. And then God says this. And I love this. I, I have to read it. It's, it's not the thrust here. of the, It's not the main point. But I love that God says this. Then the Lord answered me and said, this is chapter 2, verse 2. This little section, I love it. Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not. Terry, God says, listen, I'm going to share with you how this works. I'm going to share with you something you need to hear. I'm going to give you the hope you need. And I want you to write it down. Because I know there's going to be someone else who asks this question. I'm somebody, uh, like when I read that, I'm like, thank you. I'm somebody who asks this question. Thanks for writing this down so that I know, in case I never hear God's actual voice to me when I'm praying, I can look and see his actual voice on this word, that I know what God's plan is going to be. Now, here's what God's specific plan and, and, and for the Babylonians is. And here's how God can use the Babylonian empire to punish Judah for their wickedness and still be a good God. We're not going to read it all because there's too much and we got more to get to. But basically, from verses 5 all the way through uh, verse 19, God gives five woes. He says, I'm raising up the Babylonian Empire to come and deal with Judah, and I'm going to deal with the Babylonian Empire. Every evil, wicked thing they do by their choice will be punished. Justice will come to Babylon. 
In verse six, he says, woe to him who increases. Every time it says him, it's talking about Babylon. Woe to him who increases. Verse nine, woe to him who covets evil gain for his house. Uh, 12, woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed. All so far, Babylon checks off all these. They've done that. That's how they, that's how they operate. Uh, verse 15, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk. Corrupting, basically. Uh, verse 19, woe to him who says to wood, awake. This is anybody who worships idols. This is Babylon. Babylon had their own idols, right? That they worshiped as their own gods, right? So God gives five woes. And he says, if Babylon does any of these, they will be destroyed. Justice will be done on the Babylonian empire. Let's just take a second and see if God proved himself true. Is there a Babylonian empire anymore? Nobody seems to know. No, there's not. No Babylon. There's no Babylon anymore. It's gone. Utterly laid waste. God brought another kingdom to take care of them. It was the Persians. Is the Persian empire anymore? Gone. Right? God does what he says he's going to do. And God is just and right. And he can use evil for good, but evil will not win. So evil came, justice came to Judah through an evil empire. But God made sure that the Babylonian empire um, had justice brought to it as well. And that's what he's saying to Habakkuk here now. In that time, Habakkuk doesn't know exactly maybe how that's going to play out. And maybe he never sees the fall of the Babylonian Empire. I don't know. But we know. We know. So God says, here's my plan for Judah. You're right. Just, uh, injustice and evil is reigning, and I'm going to deal with it. And then the plan really throws Habakkuk for a loop, and he's like, I don't see how you could deal with it that way. That doesn't make sense because you're good. And God says, well, let me tell you how that makes sense. And how I can do that, because Babylon will receive justice as well. And what we can learn is that uh, evil will be dealt with by the Lord. That's another freebie to take home with you. Again, not the point, but um, just know that evil will be dealt with. So then you get to ver uh, chapter three. And if you read through it, beginning to end, you notice, I don't, again, I don't know how much time passes in between each chapter but you'll notice that there is a stark difference of Habakkuk from the first two chapters to chapter three. He is changed. And I want to talk about that in a minute, but I want to ask why is it just because he found out, well, okay, Babylon's going to be dealt with. He still had to experience and go through the hard times that were coming for Judah. So while it's hopeful, it's not that much hopeful. I mean, it, it, yeah, it's hopeful, but what do I do now? What about today? How can I uh, operate as a, as a child of God, as a righteous person, as a servant of the Lord? How can I operate in the midst of all this evil? Well, I want to focus on two verses really quickly that were found in chapter two and two things that we can do, two truths, two factual statements that God works into his answers um, to give Habakkuk the hope and the strength that he needs to continue day after day, though he is surrounded by evil and unrighteousness, though it looks like um, bad is going to win, if he operates under these two facts, these two statements, then he can have hope for the future. And he can, uh, he can say the things he says in chapter 3. Because the burden that was on his heart in 1 and 2 
seems to be relieved in three. But how did that happen? So the first question we asked was, where's God in all this? And I just want to answer that emphatically for you. I can tell you exactly where God is in all the evil and the chaos and the division and the injustice that you see, no matter what situation you're in. Look at chapter two, verse 20. Here's what it says. But the Lord is in his holy temple. That also means palace. That word temple means palace. Who resides in a palace? The king. What does the king sit on in the palace? The throne. God is on his throne. Here's what it says after that. This is interesting. Now, if you're a parent, if you have a parent, whatever, you can relate to this. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Parents often say, this is what I'm saying. And it's because I said it. And that's it. God doesn't always do that, but he's doing that here. Where am I in all this? I'm on my throne. Now everybody doesn't need, we don't need to talk about it anymore. I'm on my throne. If you're a servant of the king, you want the king on the throne. And if you know the king's on the throne and can be absolutely sure he's on the throne, then things are good in the kingdom. Right? That's the encouragement. That's the hope. That's the assurance you have that things will work out. If the good king is on the throne, then good will happen. The Lord says, I'm in my holy temple, but all the earth keeps silence before me. That's where he is in all the mess we go through. And it's never once changed. Another question, what can I do? God's on the throne. Great. Foundational. If that's not true, where you have a bigger problem than I thought, but God's on the throne. Now what can I do in the midst of evil and, and oppression and injustice and, and crushing weight of uh, the enemy that's coming after me? What can I do? Well, go back to verse four of chapter two. After God says, write all this down, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And I want it, I want it written down so everybody knows it. He says this in verse four, behold the proud. He's going to compare two different people here. Behold the proud. His soul's not right upright in him, but the just person shall live by his faith. This is a deep statement, a few words and so much meaning packed in here. Paul himself quotes Habakkuk 2.4 in Galatians and in Romans when he is describing and defining the gospel. Habakkuk is laying out the gospel for us right here. God is laying out for the, the gospel for us through Habakkuk right here. The just shall live by his faith. Habakkuk's been talking about all the death and violence and destruction I see. And God's saying there's even more coming and, and Babylon's going to be even worse. And there's going to be so much death and destruction and everything is going to get pretty bad. But if you wish to make it through, if you wish not to just survive, but to boldly walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you must live by faith. The proud person doesn't understand that. The arrogant person trusts themselves 
right? He even pointed, God even pointed it out that the Babylonians, they are their own God. So their um, victories and their um, certainty comes from themselves. But God says, if you're proud like that, your soul's not upright. And you're going to learn one of these days that you, <laughs> that your arrogance means nothing in the face of an, over, of an overwhelmingly holy and mighty God. But the just will live by his faith. Just take the example of Daniel as an illustration. Captive, brought in, everything was against him and his friends. And they continually lived by their faith, honoring God, even when it came up against laws and regulations that forbid, forbid them from doing it. And how often did they make it through? Once, twice, 100% of the time. 100% of the time in a fiery furnace that would have instantly fried you. They stood there because God kept them alive because they lived by their faith and God honored them. Even in the most powerful empire in the center of it, in the most terrible circumstances, the lion's den, right? And they didn't just survive these things. These guys became high ranking officials in the government. They were writing policy. They were creating policies. They were helping run Babylon. That's how powerful God is. And if the just uh, want to live, we need to live by faith and God will honor and protect that. Okay. I got to wrap it up real quick. Sorry. It's only three chapters, but there's a lot in there. Let me just um, say a couple of things about what this means. After Habakkuk learns that, that God's on his throne and the just live by faith, then he's able to write chapter three. And it's basically a hymn of worship to God. Uh, a prayer, you see it right there, a prayer. But this is a hymn that, that he wants sung. It says, oh Lord, I've heard your speech and I was afraid. I, God, I asked you what you were doing and God's news wasn't great. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes things are going to get worse before they get better. Oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember your mercy. Basically, he's praying here, Lord, continue to be you. Continue to operate the way you operate. He was uh, kind of astounded by what he'd heard, laid low maybe even by what he'd heard about how God was going to operate. And now he understands that that's the best way God's way is the best way. And God, please do not ever stop being you. And then um, the next couple of verses, three through, let's see, 16. I call it the march of God. And last time I was up here, we talked about the need for us to have a long-term memory about how God works in our lives. And basically that's on display here is Habakkuk chronicles the march of God through creation, through history, through humanity how God has worked, what he's done, how powerful he is, everything about it. And he just lays this out for you. So just in case you're not sure how strong or powerful or good God is, read these verses and you'll know that God, number one, is on the move. He's always working. He's deeply invested in his creation and he is working evil for good. He might use evil, but he is using it for good. In verse 16, it said, when I heard this, my body trembled. We should, be, we should have a physical reaction 
to the goodness of the Lord, especially when we're at our lowest point. And I think Habakkuk had that. And then I just want to look at these last three verses. And I want to challenge you to make this your song. My Bible calls this a hymn of faith. Make this your hymn of faith. Here's what he says. After he asked the questions, after he heard the answers that were not what he wanted to hear, and after he realized that God is on his throne and that the just shall live by faith, he's able to write these words. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the field yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Basically, he says, even if my, even when, well, he should say when, but even if my society crashes and crumbles and is utterly destroyed, right? Because they're an agrarian society. So if you don't have fruit coming in, you don't have vegetables coming in, you don't have livestock, you have nothing. This is as dramatic as he can be. Even if my nation is utterly, completely dissolved, Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. And I will joy in the God of my salvation. I don't know if right at the beginning of this book he could have said that. I don't think right in the middle he could have said that. Because after he heard what was coming, that's not much to rejoice or to joy in. But if you know that God is on his throne, and if you know that you live by your faith, and you'll be taken care of. How can we do anything else but rejoice? How can we do anything else but have joy in the God of my salvation? He started out by asking God, you're not saving us. And he ends by saying, you're the God of salvation. Habakkuk has had this transformation where he has become, begun to understand that God is on his throne and God is good. And that if he obeys the Lord, the Lord will take care of him. In verse 19, it says, the Lord God is my strength. Just, can you think of anything that's stronger than God? I couldn't. If God is your strength, that's the most strength, the strongest that it could be. The Lord God is my strength. And that, he says that for him. You can say that for you. That can be true for you. Just as much as it was for Habakkuk. He will make my feet like deer feet. He will make me walk on my high hills. That also means he'll make my feet like mountain goat feet. You watch them, ever seen them, what they do. They run around on tops of these mountains on the thinnest, littlest piece of mountain that's sticking out you can possibly find. And they jump and leap confidently from place to place to get wherever they want to go. It's not like this flat area, right? They're going up and down and over gaps and all this stuff. And they don't worry because they know they're going to grab on. That's how God, that's the confidence that God gives. That's the confidence that Habakkuk understood. That even though Babylon was coming to destroy everything, and even though it was going to get a lot worse, God was still on his throne. And if he obeyed the Lord, the Lord would honor him. So that's how I would answer the question, where's God in all this? God's on his throne. In all this can be whatever 
There's a lot of all this going on today. A lot of division in the world, in our nation, in the church. Where's God in all that? God's on his throne. What's my response to that? I must live by my faith. I must honor and obey God. If we are all doing that together, the amazing works that God will do. I can't even, I can't, I'd be utterly astounded. I wouldn't believe it even if God told me until I saw it. But that's what's possible for us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for Habakkuk. I thank you for his willingness to ask these questions. I thank you for your grace and mercy to answer these questions and not to just leave it up to whatever we figure out. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us in the midst of our darkest moments that you're still on the throne and that you love your children. You love them so much, you sent your own son to die for them. Father, help us to love you as much as we can in return, Father, and to honor you with our lives so that no matter what happens around us, when people look at us, they see Christ. They see the joy, the patience, the unity, the love of God. Our Father, I pray that they would be so attracted to it that they would come and ask us why we look so different. Father, help us to be encouragement to each other just the way Habakkuk's been encouragement to us now. We thank you. We love you. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.